If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Romans chapter 1. Once you find that, if you wouldn't mind standing for the reading of God's word. We're going to cover the same text that we did two weeks ago. We'll revisit that, verses 18 through 20. Let me begin reading in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Let's pray for our time together. Would you bow with me? Gracious Father, I come to you now. Lord, not on my own merit, but because of Jesus, our great high priest. And Lord, I place no confidence in the things that you allowed me to study. I know that human effort, despite the hours of reading and researching and listening to professionals uh, who are experts in their field, that none of this will produce any fruit if your spirit doesn't work. And so, Lord, I stand before your people today with no confidence in my human abilities, but solely depending and leaning upon your great mercy, trusting that your spirit, that he would work in and among us for the good and the transformation of your people and for the glory of your great name. For you alone are worthy. And the reason I stand with confidence today is because I believe that you are with me in this endeavor. And Father, I recognize that I'm a human, fallible, whose time on this planet is limited. And I recognize that I am weak apart from your grace. And so I ask, Lord, that if there is any way that I have offended you such that your spirit would not move to use me as a tool in your hand, would you please pardon me? because of the sacrifice of Christ. And if those who are in my audience, Lord, if they have come in, and perhaps unbeknownst to them, there's some sin that has offended you, that they have left unconfessed, unaddressed, would you please now pardon them so that they might hear from you and that you would work in their life? Lord, we depend solely upon you. Lord, we are your people, but we are your people because you have made us your people. And so we put our trust firmly in you. Be with us now in the powerful and matchless name of the Christ, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So if you've ever had a chance to serve in our children's ministry, well, this week you'll be in VBS, but if you've ever been around children for any length of time, uh, you probably have run into an instance or two in which a child has asked either you or someone around you a thought-provoking question. Sometimes children are known to ask extremely deeply philosophical questions 
that sometimes we as adults have to seek resources, uh, go and do research to, to better understand ourselves so that we might uh, know the topic at least well enough to put it in a way that their mind can understand it at the uh, stage that they are in their learning. And so this week I had a chance to go out to a website, probably you're familiar with, called Coro. It's a website where people post and answer each other's questions. I've been there a number of times just to see what people say, just out of curiosity to see what, how people think about and respond to various questions, to see how other humans are dealing with whatever topic it is that, that comes up that I'm interested in at, at the moment. Well, this week I perused the website and there was a question uh, from a parent. And there were some responses as this parent was seeking guidance um, about uh, a question that their child had posed. So let me first tell you the question, and then I just want to give you a few of the responses of how people uh, encouraged or gave guidance to or reflected on and thought about what the parent ask, was asking. So the parent simply asked this question. My daughter asked me this question. How do people come? I'm guessing from the way the question is phrased that this was probably a child who was in the earlier stages of life. Uh, she was asking me about the origin of humanity. Is man created by God or evolved from a monkey? How do I explain this to her? And so the, 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 the nature of the responses kind of had a certain feel to it, and you'll get a feel, and that's why I'm quoting these, because not every response had this, but they mostly kind of all kind of had this feel to them. There were some differences but this is the main responses kind of feel from a few. One gentleman by the name of Steve, Steve Hill who says that he's a lawyer and an accountant, he gave this counsel. He first asked, how old is your daughter? 95% or more of the world's Christians from the Pope downwards accept that evolution is real, but, but believe that God created evolution. We would call those theistic evolutionists. Uh, everyone from the uh, everything from the big from the, comes from the Big Bang. The Pope accepts this. A Catholic preach, uh, George Lamontre, first was the first one who postulated the Big Bang. The only difference between the Pope and me, an atheist, is that the Pope says God lit the fuse, and I say we can't be too sure about that. We are in almost complete agreement, however, on what happened in the next. 14 billion years, except for some differences over the probability of a virgin birth and or resurrection, etc. So Steve goes on then to explain some insights from evolution and recommends a book by Richard Dawkins for the parent to consider. Ronald J. Brown, a retired English teacher, gave this advice. It sounds as if you yourself are in need of a lesson in human biology and evolution. Neither of your answers are correct. An invisible magician living in the sky did not create us, nor are we descended from monkeys. And then he went on to give some insights from evolution. T. Stephen Cornelius, who is a writer and also an abstract artist, gave this advice. We humans are an ape species, not monkey. And that's the first thing you tell her. A god can't create himself or herself then create something else. Some person has, made, has to make up the idea of a god just to justify why they exist. But since you do exist, there's no need to justify it. 
regardless the biology and chemistry and energy and stuff that we are and all the other stuff of animated life or just geological or astrological stuff is endlessly interesting to ponder far, far more than the God thing. Which sounds better and more fun? Gavin Harding, a dad uh, who says that he's giving care to his son, perhaps because of the nature of what's going on with his son. He's not able to operate in his field of study. Uh, and he just said he's proud to be uh, parenting his child as he described himself. He gave this advice. He said, do you have access to the Internet? Clearly you do, as you're posting here on Coral. So I would recommend visiting a natural history museum and or a website and learning together about evolution. Evolution is a fact. There's no evidence for any gods ever existing and a plethora of evidence for evolution of humans and a common ancestor. I recommend visiting, of course, the Smithsonian National Museum of History. So make a trip to D.C. Uh, Gianluca Molinari, who is a college student, gave this advice. I was kind of pondering why a college student who's not a parent would be giving parenting advice, but nevertheless, um, said this, uh, your choice, either you tell her the history of evolution proven by many scientists throughout history and based on scientific facts, or you can tell her about a God who that loves us so much that he makes children suffer because of numerous illnesses. He makes people live in poor countries devastated by wars, and I could go on. Your choice. Now, of course, you don't want to give all this negative information to your daughter, especially if she's young. She'll find out on her own. When I was a child, I really enjoyed the story of creation. And one could say creationism is just a more poetic way of describing evolution. Now, I share these comments not because I'm here to critique the uh, reasonableness or lack of reasonableness of evolution. But there are people who are using evolution in a certain way when it comes to thoughts of God. And that's what I'm going to try to address. But there was one other thought or question that another parent asked that I thought was fascinating. I won't give you the responses, but I at least want to read the question to you of what this parent asked. This parent wrote, my son, four years old, is asking about God as both me and my partner and our parents are atheists. How did he even get the concept of God? I had supposed that he had atheist genes. Interesting. So, let's say you were popping around on Cora and you ran across one of these two questions. What would have been your response this parent seeking advice. What would you have typed in response to give this parent some counsel about how to respond to this question that their child has asked? Well, as you ponder that, I noticed that there was a kind of theme running through the different responses, and I came to the conclusion that, as you probably did, not everybody thinks about reality, ultimate reality, in the same way that I think about ultimate reality, or probably many of you who are sitting in this room think about ultimate reality, that for us, God factors in some kind of way. But I would venture to guess that I would, I would probably believe and probably could prove 
if I were to have a chance to do enough research and evidence uh, from the lives of these people that if I were to really look critically at their lives and follow them around and really see into their decision-making process that in somewhere in their life, the beliefs that they hold are impacting the decisions of how they're living out their lives. And you probably have seen examples, not necessarily from these people, but from friends that you have who might believe in a similar way. You see how that belief is affecting the decisions that they're making. Now, why do I bring all this up in light of we're talking about Romans chapter 1? What, what relevance does this have for us? Well, the sample of answers that I've given you that have raised some ideas or concepts are the very concepts that Paul is dealing with in Romans chapter 1. So the last time we looked at these verses, it was about two weeks ago that we were together and we were looking at these exact three verses. I took time to put our attention on the first verse and to weigh in on this concept that Paul raises at the beginning of verse 18, the wrath of God. And I talked about last time just kind of three concepts, which is the first concept was this idea, first of all, that God is aware of all human thought and action. And then I said, in response to God's observation of human thought and action, it elicits from God a certain response because what God notices and sees about humans that seems to be verified every day on the news is that humans have this propensity toward evil. We like to do some awful stuff to one another, right? And so God sees this and it elicits a wrathful response for him. But we didn't end there. We ended by reflecting on God's uh, intervention in human history through the life of one man, Jesus of Nazareth, and through him has brought salvation to humanity. And that's kind of where we ended last time. So this week, I want to focus on the latter two verses that we didn't have a chance to address in, in our first uh, time together. Uh, and I want to point out, I want to kind of bring out here the concept of Paul's talking about this idea that he raises at the end of verse 18, truth. And then I want to show how that idea relates to the wrath that he talks about at the beginning and why God's wrath is justified when we understand what's going on with humanity and with God in light of these things. And so today I'll follow suit as I did two weeks ago, and I'm going to do it in three movements. So three concepts that I'll raise today in light of our last two verses. And like last time, let me just tell you up front, just in case you've had a hard work week, you've worked some long hours like Pastor James who did six long days of mission trips this week, and maybe you're just in here because you love God, but your body's saying, I'm tired, and in about five minutes from now, you're just going to pass out. <laughs> your heart is right. You're here in the right place, but your body's saying, I, I don't know if I'm going to make it. So let me tell you right up front so you can listen later. Uh, people know the truth. That's point one. People know the truth. People reject the truth. And finally, people will face the truth. People know the truth. People reject the truth. But people will face the truth. So where are we going to start at? Well, let's just start right in the order of where Paul starts. We'll pick up at verse 19. Let's look back again at verse 19 together. So Paul says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. 
And so with this statement, Paul begins now to fill out this concept of truth for us that he has just stated in the previous verse in his thought. And here we find out that the content of truth is the knowledge of God, the knowledge of God. Now, what does Paul tell us about the knowledge of God in this verse? Well, look what he says there. He says it's plain to them. Well, of course, we have to figure out who is the them that he's talking about. Well, we've kind of know from last week and previous messages that here in this part of Romans, in this first chapter that he's dealing with, mainly those who are not the descendants of Abraham, the Gentiles. Here, perhaps in the city of Rome, he's thinking most of, mostly of Greeks and Romans and those others who comprise uh, the people that make up the population and who are in the broader society that make up the Roman Empire, not necessarily the Israelites or the Jews. And so that's mainly who he has in focus, but it kind of bridges over to them as he's setting them up in the way that he's doing things, and we'll talk a little bit about more of that in the, in the future, in the weeks to come as we get to that. But he says, this knowledge of God is plain to the Gentiles. Some would translate this word. If you looked across English translations, you might read different words here. They all get the basic same idea. So plain, clear, evident, obvious, any of those types of words. They're getting at the same kind of idea. And whatever the content is of this knowledge of God, which I'm going to fill that out because Paul fills it out in the next verse, we at least know that it's obvious to all people. Now, scholars are divided about exactly what this knowledge is and how it pertains to people and what is the nature of it. Let me put it in the form of a question. So some are asking, is the knowledge something that people already possess, even as unbelievers? Or is the knowledge, is, it's referring to access to evidence about God that's readily available to all, that is they have access to the evidence for God, that, it, that God is knowable. And you can see this kind of play out in your English translation. So if you were reading the NASB, if you preferred that translation, as some on our staff do, you would probably notice that the slight wording difference is there, and they have gone with option number one. But as you can see in the ESV, our preferred translation here at Living Water, the KJV, the NIV, and the NET, you'll notice that they seem to lean towards option number two. And so I won't address that here for sake of time, but I, I will get to a main point. So you'll kind of have to weigh that out. And here's the main thing I want to get to. How do we know that this knowledge is obvious? In, in either case, how, how do we know that it's obvious? Notice what Paul says at the end of verse 19. He says, because God has revealed it. That it's not men working their way to God, but God who's already made it known to humans. One writer and commentator by the name of Bruce Baker stated it this way. God himself is the active agent pressing home the knowledge of his existence. Now, that raises for us a couple of other questions. What is this knowledge God has revealed to humanity about himself, and how does he reveal it? So we're going to find both answers in the next verse. So let's look at verse 20 once again. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. 
So Paul raises one of the attributes of God for us. And what Paul says here is that God is invisible. Now, if you were to look through Scripture, you'll run into this concept in several places. Let me give you a few verses where you might encounter this idea about God. In the Old Testament, a couple of key passages would be like Exodus chapter 33, verse 20, the book of Job chapter 9, verse 11. In the New Testament, it just ramps up John chapter 1, verse 18, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, and then at the end of that letter in chapter 6, verse 16, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 27, and then in the letter of 1 John chapter 4, both in verses 12 and in verse 20. And when you think about our human experience, I would venture to guess if I were to pan and do a survey of the room and we could do it on our phones real quick and I were to ask you, have you ever seen God? I would believe on this poll, unlike other polls, I would get a 100% answer of no. I've never physically seen God because we cannot see God. And from this human experience, some have inferred, and might I would say wrongly, from their human experience because of divine revelation, that because I cannot see God, God must not exist. In contrast, Paul says something startling. He says, this invisible God with his invisible attributes are clearly seen. Now, that doesn't seem to go together. You're telling me the God that I can't see, I do see? What are you doing here, Paul? You're making a contradiction. But Paul resolves that for us in the text as he explains it. First, he tells us what attributes he has in mind. Look again at the text. Notice what it says. What is it that we see about God? Both things being eternal, his power and his divine nature. We know God exists and he is powerful. But how then do we see that which cannot be seen? Notice what he says in the text. It is by looking at creation. Some have drawn the kind of concept or idea of you see a painting, especially a very good one, and you know that there was a painter. You look at creation, that ought to imply there's a creator. You look at something that has been well designed, it would imply a designer. So here in our preferred translation, the ESV, now what happens in the text is something interesting. They take two words that are being used in the original language and collapse them to one idea. If you're just reading the English, you wouldn't pick it up here if you were just only reading the ESV. But if you were like some of you who are Bible students and you read across multiple English translations, you would start to notice that things are not exactly the same. For instance, the NASB pulls both of these words in and give them both their meaning so as to preserve both words. That's just the way that team decided to do it. Let me show you how this plays out. Here's the way the NSB phrases the text. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, here it is, have been clearly seen, and there's the next one, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So you see there, I highlighted them and underlined them here. There's the two words brought across have been clearly seen, being understood versus the other one, combine the concepts 
together to get the idea. One writer explains it this way. The two verbs together then suggest seeing with the eye and understanding with the mind. We see creation, and that brings about an internal awareness that God exists, and he is powerful. On a scale undreamt of by man. And this knowledge about God is evident. Notice what Paul says, how long it's been available since the creation of the world to all peoples in all places at all times whenever you're awake. You know, you can't really see it when you're sleeping. But when you're awake, whether that's at night or day, it's available. And I think this is what is happening with children. Children understand some things about the world from their experience. They see with their eyes and with their minds, it brings an awareness that all this stuff had to come from somewhere and specifically from someone because they notice the patterns and order in creation. And the question that it is to parents is, who made all this stuff? I know you did. So who did? Now, Paul is not the first one to come to this conclusion. So long before Paul ever lived, there was another man by the name of King David. And he said something similar. You probably have already read it. Psalm chapter 19, the first six verses. David wrote, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. It's rising from the ends of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. David observes the creation around him. He looks at the orderliness of it, and he comes to the conclusion that creation witnesses that God exists and that he is powerful. Now, here is a fascinating thought to entertain just, you know, if you're out and you just have nothing better to do in the afternoon. You know, as Americans, that's generally not true of us. But uh, in this case, perhaps you'll find some spare time. What is it that David knew about creation? How much information did he have to come to that conclusion? And compare that to the amount of knowledge that we have about the universe in this day. And that's an interesting puzzle to consider. Seeing that, I would believe, based on divine revelation, that he comes to the right conclusion. Likewise, Paul does a similar thing when he is visiting the city of Lystra. He uses creation for those who are outside the community of Israel as a witness to God's existence and God's power. Acts chapter 14, the latter part of there is where he gets into it in verses 16 and 17. But what he draws upon is the cycle of rain and food. 
and said, these are evidences of God's existence. See, creation testifies every day and every night that God exists and he is powerful. Now, when we look back at Paul's time, around the time that Paul lived here on planet Earth, he wasn't the only one thinking this way. There were others who were outside the community of Israel who also came to similar conclusions. Dr. Craig Keener, who is a New Testament scholar, reflects and gives us some insight about that when he writes these words. Even Gentile intellectuals could have followed Paul's argument here because apart from the more skeptical Epicureans, most Greek and Roman intellectuals recognize divine design in nature. Many reckoned as absurd the alternatives, namely that the universe resulted from chance or human activity. Various philosophers affirmed that the supreme deity was present in and known by his works. And many of these writers also affirmed, like Paul, that one could infer much about God's character from creation. Another New Testament scholar by the name of Ben Witherington III cites one example from a Roman philosopher and statesman and a variety of other things that he did by the name of Cicero. And this is what he says. Cicero argues that when one examines the heavens and the earth, one cannot but believe that some God or higher power is responsible for such a magnificent, magnificent, intricately designed and enormous structure. Interesting. Two other New Testament scholars in reflecting on the historical writings during that period of time came to some insightful conclusions. And I think they're worth stating. Even without the benefit of such products of human invention as microscope and telescope, they, these ancients, thinkers, were able to reflect on the vastness of the universe, the fixed order of the heavenly bodies in their courses, the arrangement of leaves around a stem, the cycle of the divinely created waterworks, you talk about the evaporation cycle, cloud formation and such. The mystery of growth of a seed to plant, not just any plant, but the particular kind of plant from which the seed originated. Although the plant doesn't, the seed doesn't always look like the plant. The thrill of the sunrise from faint rosy flush to majestic orb. The skill of birds in building their homes without ever having taken lessons in home building. The generous manner in which food is supplied for all creatures. The adaptation of living creatures to their environment, etc., etc. Now I was reminded of this whole bird incident because out on the back of my deck, underneath my deck, some birds have taken it up to make it their home. And I pondered this question. Who taught them how to build those nests. I always wondered, is there a, a bird school or bird university where they go to, where a bird professor educates them on the intricacies of the material use and the, 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 the organizing of the materials to build a certain strength and structure and softness so that the babies that are born can, can fit in there nicely because I would like to lodge a complaint to that school. I want to ask those professors in whatever class it is when they teach on location to not put that underneath my deck. But who really? 
Who teaches them that? And how many other examples can we think of from the animal kingdom? Where did that information come from that they know how to do it? In recent times, some studies have been done about human belief in God, and there have been some at least preliminary interesting findings. That doesn't mean it's going to hold true all the way out, but as on the front end, while people have been doing some of these studies, let me cite an example for you. In one article, the writer records this. Infants are hardwired to believe in God, and atheism has to be learned according to an Oxford University psychologist. Dr. Olivia Petrovich uh, told uh, a University of Western Sydney conference who was doing the study was on the philosophy of religion that even preschool children constructed theological concepts as part of their understanding of the physical world. So psychologists have been debating this idea, are we born with this uh, you know, propensity towards leaning towards belief in God or towards, you know, atheism. That, that, that's our natural human uh, state. Well, according to Dr. Petrovich, and who is an expert in the philosophy of religion, belief in God is not taught but develops naturally. She said that belief in God emerged as a result of other psychological development connected with understanding causation. It is hardwired into the human psyche, but it was important not to build too much into the concept of God. It's the concept of God as creator, primarily. Who does that sound like? Sounds similar to what Paul is saying. Dr. Petrovich based her findings on several studies, particularly one of Japanese children ages four to six and another 400 British children ages five to seven from seven different faiths. She went on to say in this article, atheism is definitely an acquired position. In another interview, a separate interview, when she was, uh, another writer interviewing her about her research, said this about the Japanese study. The pattern of responding among Japanese children is highly significant in this context, seeing that those children live in a culture that does not in any way encourage a belief in God as creator. Yet the most common reply given by Japanese preschoolers about natural objects origin was, they didn't say it in English, obviously they said it in Japanese, but translated to English, it was God made it. Whilst there is growing research evidence that children from across different religious and cultural backgrounds consistently attribute to God the existence of natural objects, What is so interesting about the Japanese participants is that this particular causal inference is not a product of their education, but a natural development in their understanding of the world. They didn't learn it in school. They didn't learn it at home. It just seemed to happen as a result of them living in the world. If this holds to be true, it seems that our natural propensity is towards observing the world and belief in a creator God, but it seems like we have to be educated out of it. Hear what Paul is saying again. For what what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it 
to them. Now, if God's revelation is so clear, so available to all, then why do so many people believe differently? The Bible, when we consider what else it says about humans, gives us the answers. Humans are not neutral observers. It would be wonderful to say that you could put evidence before a person and they would have no bias in one direction or the other. They would objectively look at the evidence, keep all options on the table and say, which one makes the best sense out of this evidence? That's just not the case. Because of our corruption of sin, we lean in a certain direction. We like to reject God's revelation. That's my second point. People reject the truth. The truth that God exists and he is powerful. Look back at verse 18 at the following, the, I mean the final part of verse 18. Notice what Paul writes. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. I like the insight that Dr. Witherington gives us here when he writes, We hear of the pagans holding down or obstructing the truth in unrighteousness. Paul does not believe in either the noble savage or the totally ignorant pagan. Rather, he believes that sinful humanity, in this case pagans, universally repress the knowledge of God available to them and so are held accountable. Another scholar by the name of Dr. J. Edwards put it this way. The problem of human guilt is not God's hiddenness and therefore humanity's ignorance, but rather God's self-disclosure and humanity's rejection of it. God's not hiding. God has presented the evidence. We just don't like what it implies, and so we reject it. But since people cannot assassinate the witness of creation, they have to work to suppress it. Now, Mike will unpack what that means in full detail. But let me give you one example from the modern world that potentially might refer to or give us some idea of how this works during our time, potentially. Doesn't mean that it is, but it may be a kind of idea. So one interview that I listened to by Dr. Stephen Meyer, in the the interview talking about the fine-tuning of the universe, he brought up this whole concept, and he told a story about some things that had happened in history, but it was this one particular part that he was just telling in passing that caught my attention. So he's talking about Dr. Stephen Hawking, who died back in 2018, brilliant, like mind, like one of those rare minds that come in human existence and has impacted the world. So back in 1968, Dr. Hawking, along with a British mathematician by the name of Dr. Penrose, did some formulations on what Einstein's theory was and came to some conclusions about the universe. Uh, And what they came to was this idea that the universe had a definite beginning, which supported research that had already been done when people had looked out at the universe, specifically one person, and and saw that the universe seemed to be expanding equally away from our solar system in all directions. And that pointed then back to the implication that the universe had a definite beginning. Now, as time passed and people began to to realize the implications of this, the theistic implications, because so the idea kind of goes like this, right? So whatever begins to exist must have a cause. 
And if we now say, hey, look, the universe began to exist, then as a result of that, the universe must have a cause. But what kind of cause would it be that would cause the universe that kind of have the power to exist and have the kind of order which would imply a mind, not just blind forces, which would now point to a spaceless, timeless, eternal, super intelligent, super powerful being that we would call God. He didn't really like the implications of that, so in the late 1980s, he and some others began to work on coming up with a different theorem to understand the origin of things so that he could get away from the theistic implications of what he had discovered earlier. And I found that to be fascinating. Listen to what the Dr. John Stott says. He says, it's not just that they do wrong, though they know better. It is that they have made an a priori decision to live for themselves rather than for God and others, and therefore deliberately stifle any truth which challenges their self-centeredness. See, we have this propensity that when we bump up against reality and truth, we find ways to cover it up so that we can keep living the way we want to live. And what Paul does here that's not mentioned in the text, but he's laying out for us, is the case of God's innocence because of the fact that God does not judge innocent people with his wrath. God has made the case. I mean, Paul has made the case that God is doing what is just in judging the guilty. Let's look at the final phrase of verse 20 to deal with our last and final point, and we'll conclude our time together. Notice what Paul writes here. He says, so they are without excuse. So what Paul implies by this is that there is coming because in his conceptual world is the idea of judgment, that all humans must give an answer to this creator God. And so people will have to face the truth about this God that creation testifies exists and is powerful. As one writer puts it, as he warns his audience, which I think would be a good warning for us and for the world, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so Paul tells us here that the witness of creation remo removes any excuse that a human might want to use in the divine court of heaven. And so they have nothing that they'll be able to offer as why they did not turn to God. Now, he's not implying that the knowledge of creation is salvific, but they have enough light to realize that there is a being to who they're accountable and they should seek him out. Dr. Stephen Ronge put it this way. Paul tells us that God has clearly made himself known by revealing his divine attributes. We cannot blame our separation from God on our lack of knowledge. Rather, the problem stems from our response to the knowledge that God actually gives. Now, in light of what Paul says here, it does answer one of those perennial questions that often come up in objection to faith in God. What about those who've never heard? Based on what Paul says here and what's available in creation is the answer to that question is this. There's no one who has not heard. No one who's not heard. Everyone has heard because creation is available at all times and in every place 
singing forth its witness day and night. In reflecting on this, one of the early church fathers, John Christentum, said this. The prophets have said, the heavens declare the glory of God. Will the heathens say at the judgment that they are ignorant of God? Did they not hear heaven sending forth a voice while the well-ordered harmony of all things spoke out more clearly than a trumpet? Did you not see the hours of day and night remaining constantly unmoved? The good order of winter, spring, and the other seasons remaining both fixed and unmoved. Yet God did not set so great a system of teaching before the heathen in order to deprive them of any excuse but so that they might come to know him. But it was by their failure to recognize him that they deprived themselves of every excuse. So when confronted with the truth, when they rejected that truth, they condemned themselves. It's with this reality in mind that I think that there is an implication for us as people of faith. It ought to burden us for those who are not in right relationship with God. Remember verse 16 and 17 that we addressed previously? We have the knowledge of God's salvation from his wrath in the message of Jesus, about Jesus, how he lived a sinless life, died for our sins, was raised from the dead, ascended to heaven, is returning to judge both the living and the dead, and he's the only way of escape. We have that. And it becomes incumbent upon us to make sure that that knowledge is shared and people are reasoned with. Because we know that without a faith response to the gospel message of Jesus, there is no salvation. And we now know that when they stand before the court of heaven, they will have no excuse. For when the witnesses come out, they will condemn them. One of those witnesses will be creation itself. See, creation is God's witness that he exists and he's powerful. But you are God's witness of his salvation and of his grace. And so make sure that you're doing your job. Dr. William Lane Craig, who's a well-known and world-renowned Christian apologist, um, has has done some things in his organization to create videos to help believers in presenting, perhaps, in some of these intellectual circles, uh, arguments for God. On one of them that dealt with the fine-tuning of the universe, he lays out two quotes from two uh, scientists who bring some interesting Uh, thoughts about after studying the universe, and I thought it would be good to close with this based on their observations. Now, the fine-tuning of the universe argument is basically this idea or concept, to put it in a a way that maybe for some of us who are not in those fields could get around, is the idea that the universe is a Goldilocks universe, if you're familiar with that story. So Goldilocks, right? Not too hot, not too cold. Not too fast, not too slow and a bunch of things like that that deal with the fundamental forces of the universe that make life possible, or specifically here, carbon, which is basis, makes, makes life possible for us here and perhaps life itself. So that's the kind of idea. And there, there, there are two who wrote about this in light of what they discovered. The first himself was an astrophysicist and cosmologist who was the first person to make the discovery, Fred Hoyle, who himself was an atheist. And this is what he said. A common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics. 
that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The number one calculates from the facts seem to me overwhelming as to put this conclusion beyond question. Physicist Paul Davies said this, there is for me more powerful evidence there. There is something going on behind it all. It seems as though somebody has fine-tuned nature's numbers to make the universe. The impression of design is overwhelming. David said, the heavens declare the glory of God, that he exists and he is powerful, to whom every human must give an answer. And the death and resurrection of Jesus firmly established that the God who is the creator of all is the God that is revealed in this book, the Bible. If you're a Christian, I simply say, who is it in your life to whom you need to reason with so that they might believe in Jesus. And if you're not yet a believer, I simply ask you, are you ready to meet this God who exists and is all-powerful? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word, and I thank you for this time together. Lord, I pray that you would help us to take seriously what your word has revealed so that we live in a way that is pleasing to you. Let us stand, and we'll sing our final song, and we'll dismiss you here in just a brief moment.